trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. All right, here we go. This is what we call reveling in wrong think. By the way, I had a friend ask me about that the other day. What's Where did you get this whole wrong think, you know, concept, especially the idea of revel in wrong think? And I have to give credit where credit's due. That one goes to my friend, uh, Eric Peters. Now, of course, wrong think, as, as you know, would, would uh, most likely be traced back to uh, Orwell, 1984, new speak and so forth. Wrong think was when you engaged in uh, thought crime. Basically, you questioned the narrative. You didn't go along with what the party was telling you you had to believe. And, of course, what the party told you you had to believe. I mean, you couldn't even make a face like, what? You know, when, when someone said something really outrageous, like, we've always been at war with East Asia, as opposed to we've always been at war with Eurasia. Nonetheless, Eric and I were having a conversation a couple of years ago. And it just, I don't know, it hit me as, uh, you know, this is, this is uh, th- that word wrong think is something that, that people shy away from because, right, it'll get you canceled, deplatformed, or throttled back in the algorithms on various social media. Well, I'm of the opinion we need to embrace it. In fact, we need to lean into it, as the saying goes. And so uh, I say don't just engage in it, revel in it. Celebrate the fact that you are willing to step outside the boundaries of so-called approved opinion and to think for yourself. Now, notice I'm not saying and repeat what Brian's saying or share whatever he says as, as gospel truth. I'm just suggesting be a wrong thinker and be willing to question it all because right now there is so much disinformation and misinformation. And I mean in the real sense, as in Information that's presented with the purpose of keeping you from seeing the truth or from putting two and two together and realizing, hey, this is not in my best interest. Well, that just sounds like a conspiracy. Yes, yeah, so that's a, that's another example of, you know, uh, if, if it's happening right in front of you and you're being told, don't believe your lying eyes, maybe wrong think would be the wiser way to go. It's not going to guarantee you're right every time, but I bet you're not wrong nearly as often. Nevertheless, thanks for giving it a shot. Thanks for thanks for joining me today. Two quick articles I want to point out. Uh, one is from Wayne Lusvardi. I've not heard of Wayne before today. I saw his article on LewRockwell.com. Madness is irreversible when it is wrongly explained. And he gives a quick example of some of the things that Americans find themselves unable to explain. And it's examples of madness that they see piped into their homes daily electronically. So when you see things like socially engineered inflation of prices for food, gasoline, electricity, etc., when you see tyrannical medical care of anyone hospitalized, including isolation and lethal dosage medication, usurpation of their own doctor, and death from hospital-created sepsis, bacterial infection from intubation or ventilation, but not the virus, when you see 22 high-tech corporations funding $82 billion dollars to Black Lives Matter, to foment anti-race riots and destroy small business in blue cities. When you see big pharma drug companies that control the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control, declaring a pandemic resulting in injection mandates in order to keep a job 
Martial law, closure of only small businesses while wealth was transferred to 493 new billionaires that this created. When you see rich oligarchs funding gender transition clinics, when you see district attorneys granting immunity to violent criminals, ballot harvesting to manipulate election outcomes, paying doctors premiums to prescribe dangerous opioids, transportation of immigrants into the country to undermine working class wages. When you see rolling out of plans to phase out cheap, relatively cleaner power plants and gasoline-fueled cars to replace the consumer economy with rationing, useless conservation, and sacrifice to avoid a purely hypothetical global warming crisis. When you see criminalization of peaceful, unarmed protest and religious assembly enforced by complicit kangaroo courts. When you see wild overspending on unnecessary proxy war in Ukraine involving money laundering operation for elites as Medicare and Social Security are being phased out as insolvent. That's the kind of madness that we're talking about. And he says, why do we call what do we call it rather when high tech, big pharma and billionaires together with mass media they own carry out a coordinated insurrection to take over the economy and government to subjugate the working class to squelch free speech, impose deadly medical mandates, and undertake movements to destroy the bourgeoisie family, cultural institutions, and religion, all to protect wealthy monopoly profit capitalists. Historically, it's been called fascism, contrary to current conservative intellectuals who inaccurately reduce it to the mere ideologies of liberalism, neoliberalism, Marxism, Leninism, socialism, leftism, critical race theory, transsexual justice, or medical tyranny. He says fascism is more of a one more of a form of one-sided crisis management than it is an ideology. Now I have to admit that's that's not a bad point. But he also says another misnomer is due to the American cultural perception of a classless society which sees this madness as mere political extremism or anti-racism rather than a class war involving incited mass murderers especially of Christians, mass murders rather especially of Christians, medical classicide Kangaroo court imprisonment and torture, wage suppression by suppression rather by mass immigration, denial of financial capital to blue collar businesses like beer manufacturers, and fragmentation of families in courts and schools. Anyway, I'll let you discover the rest of this. It's look, you may well not agree with the conclusions that uh, Wayne Lusvardi makes here, but it's it's very interesting when he puts all of that madness together there in one essay. And he calls it, uh, he says, the right name to call this is globalist fascism. And you need to understand, it's a one-side murderous class war. It's not just leftist ideological extremism or anti-racism. And he says, we need to call out the renegade oligarchs and corporations. There's parts in here that I really agree with. There's parts that I'm like, "Eh, I'm not so sure about that. Still, I think it's well worth a look. All right, here's another one. Um, If you're struggling to keep your feet on solid ground, especially during these turbulent times, Jeff Minnick has some tactics for maintaining your rights, your freedoms, your dignity, and traditions. He says, it's a matter of knowing how to fight our failed postmodernist gods. And he doesn't hold back right from the very first sentence. When men make themselves gods, they make themselves demons. The last hundred years bear out this assertion. Hitler... Stalin, Mao, and other dictators wielded the power of life and death over millions of people. Those blessed, who, those who blessed these tyrants or venerated them had more favorable chances of survival and success. Those who cursed these tyrants or slighted the tyrants' ideology were prime candidates for the gallows 
or the gulag. Now, I just have to point this out as an aside. Hitler, Stalin, and Mao did not dirty their own hands in killing millions and millions of people, tens of millions of people. But they persuaded others to do it for them. And you are seeing that dynamic today in which it's, it's the obedient who allow those kinds of atrocities to happen. So if you've ever wondered about, well, you know, should I go? It's the law, you know, I'm, I'm a law-abiding person, therefore I should probably wear the star on my sleeve and I should probably show up at the cattle cars when I'm told to. Look, legal and moral are not the same thing. And obedience is what will get you in the kind of trouble that, uh, that these genocidal maniacs cooked up for their own people. I know, these are strong words. That's pretty radical, but here we are. And I have no doubt that to the people who are pulling the strings today and who believe that it is their birthright, it is their prerogative to control the world and to shape the world as they see fit, they're not doing so for altruistic reasons. They're not doing it with our best interests in mind. And they will gladly, I believe they, they will happily imprison or kill as many people as they feel is necessary in order to get their way. As Jeff Minnick points out, though the ideologies differ in dictatorships like China and Iran, the state still retains its godlike powers. In totalitarian North Korea, Kim Jong-un takes this concept to its logical conclusion and actually paints himself, as did his father, as a living god. That's the power of the cult of personality. Now he says, fortunately, the free world sports its own pantheon of gods and goddesses, mortals who deem themselves superior to their fellow human beings. Born by the winds of wealth, power, and fame, and bound by no moral code other than their own, they deliver opinions and edicts as if they were infallible. I would also add they seem to spend a lot of time visiting with Jeffrey Epstein, or at least they did before he killed himself. Jeff Minnick says the consequences of their boundless blind egotism were abundantly evident during the COVID-19 pandemic, when under the guise of the common good, they forced citizens into masks and into their homes, They closed churches, schools, businesses, and required millions to take a vaccine that didn't work. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. I know, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, that's that's the truth at work. That's cognitive dissonance. You're trying to hold two conflicting ideas simultaneously, and it's clear that one of them can't be true. Are you brave enough to suss it out and figure out which one it is? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Birelli.com, TMCPNation.com, and I'd like to welcome ClimbingUpward.com, as one of my sponsors as well. So I'm sharing with you this article from Jeff Minnick on how to fight our failed postmodernist gods. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think he's he's using that term in a sacrilegious sense, but this is how there are people who th- there are people who think of themselves as, you know, the gods of this world. Look at the politicians in Washington DC. Do they not strut around as if they have some kind of godlike power? To shape everything. I mean, look at look at their approach on climate change. Well, we need to spend you know this many trillion dollars to fight climate change. 
that when they're asked, and by the way, people did ask this week of some of these officials, well, how exactly is us giving you money going to change the climate? Well, it has to be done. There's just no question. We all agree it has to be done. But you're not telling us how it's supposed to be done. Well, we, we, you have to do what we tell you. Craziness. Craziness writ large. Anyway, back to Jeff's essay. He says, uh, you know, he spells out the power of the cult of personality, but says, unfortunately, the free world sports its own pantheon of gods and goddesses who, who think they are superior to their human beings, to their fellow human beings. And he says, the gods don't apologize. So these grand poobahs move on to the next great crisis with, you know, they had COVID vaccine. Now they're moving on to defying the realities of science and biology. They're trying to abolish the sexes and demand the rest of us do the same. Many of them can't fix a leaky faucet or even change a flat, but they believe they have the power to shape the world's climate. They see a riot of flames and theft and regally label it a peaceful demonstration, or mostly peaceful. They attack Christianity and Judaism, twisting and appropriating the commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So how do you fight this? There are many brave men and women, Jeff talks about here, who've turned their backs to these false gods, recognizing that they are demons in disguise. And he lists out some of the tactics this band of happy warriors employ in keeping their rights, their freedoms, their dignity, and their traditions. Number one is observation. When a film star or sports figure decries America as racist, the prudent among us look at friends and neighbors, and we see no overt signs of racism. In fact, these careful observers conclude that the accusations of America being deeply racist, sexist, and otherwise evil are just ways to destroy and divide our great nation. I had a friend actually wrote about this several years ago. He was traveling through the airport, and I, I can't remember if he was going through Texas. He may have actually been in Atlanta, Georgia. But he said, you know, I, I've there's been a lot of talk about how racist America is becoming and how racist it is and has always been. And he says, I'm not getting that. And he says, going through the airport, I'm interacting with people of every type. And he says, what I mostly see, the vast majority of people I see are good, pleasant, and genuinely kind toward their fellow man. So why do we believe this nonsense? Well, no, no, it's, it's, it's systemic. Everybody, you, you don't even know you're racist and you're being racist by questioning whether or not what I'm telling you is true. I mean, that sounds like somebody with, with some pretty serious emotional issues to say that kind of thing. Anyway, here's another tactic that uh, Jeff Minnick pinpoints investigation with an endless amount of digital information at their fingertips these citizens can easily perform their own fact checking some of them for instance did so during the COVID-19 crisis and they found that masks provided little if any protection against the virus now some of them even said so right you remember that and they were told oh you don't question the science wasn't it just last week or a couple of weeks ago that the science in Dr. Anthony Fauci admitted well, masks work on the margins, maybe 10%. Yeah. In other words, 90% of the time, they don't work. Glad to see that the truth finally caught up with the science. On the matter of education, that's another tactic you can use to stand up to these failed postmodernist gods. Truth seekers read about the gods of the past who murdered untold millions of their own people. They keep abreast of the news, but they learn to separate propaganda and fake news from reality. Best of all, perhaps they read history and the literature of our Western civilization. 
More than anything else, these words and books reveal the chicanery of human gods. Next, they implement a code. People of all political persuasions frequently attach themselves to an ideology or to the cause of another human being. But Jeff says the wise avoid that temptation. Instead, they develop and live by a personal code based on long-held virtues, ideals like wisdom, courage, and temperance. They take stock of themselves and others by the parameters of that code rather than by the political cause of the day. And finally, he talks about the tactic of God. He says, even those of us who believe in the reality of God all too often neglect to live out that belief, treating God as a piece rather than the core of our being. But he says, to be truly faithful, we should be putting God front and center in our lives, and the importance of the little human gods will consequently diminish. Those who do this understand what G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton meant when he wrote, wherever the people do not believe in something beyond the world, they will worship the world. Wow. That is a powerful quote. So Jeff Minnick says these failed little gods who want to control us often deal in lies. Their deceptions always seem to race ahead of the truth, leaving it in the dust, obscure and forgotten. But they forgot the timeless Aesopian contest between the tortoise and the hare, a race to which the tortoise, in this case the truth, and its defenders always win. Marvelous, marvelous stuff. And by the way, on this same note, I'm including an article from J.B. Shirk. This is from AmericanThinker.com. As a digitized iron curtain descends, spiritual faith rises. And I do believe this, this is the way. This is, this is where we need to be turning our focus and turning our attention. And I understand for some people, but politics, we can't, we can't abandon politics. Look, be involved in politics, but if you're going to give something priority... Tend to the spiritual stuff. Get spiritually right first. If you're a believer, I'm going to say get right with God. And then the other stuff is a lot easier to deal with. Why? Because you're leaning upon the ultimate source of truth. As opposed to making it a, well, okay, it's a once a week kind of thing. I'll go acknowledge God and then get back to fighting this politics thing like it's all dependent on politics. I guess another way to put this is, I'll, I'll, I'll remind you what Ammon Bundy reminded me and a number of friends on the morning of April 12th, 2014, there at Bundy Ranch. We got together and he he joined us in a little field just to the south of his, his parents' ranch house. And the first words out of his mouth was, gentlemen, we've got to calm our hearts and remember who is really in charge. And I'm telling you, from that moment on, it, it set the tone, it, it, it set a more spiritual tone for, for all the conversation and prayers that followed. So J.B. Shirk talks about how two trend lines extend into the future. One tracks government's increased oppression, surveillance, and social control. The other tracks people's rising spiritual faith, desire for freedom, and determination that government should leave them alone. And he says, this is our reality. It also exposes the chink in totalitarianism's armor. The greater the government's coercion, the more convinced a growing share of the population becomes that Ill illegitimate government must go. And specifically, he talks about the, the power that faith plays in helping people stay true to what really matters. I'll have to have you, uh, I'll have to have you invite you to take a look at this yourself because we're up against the clock here. But the bottom idea, the bottom line idea here is spiritual faith in a higher power grows 
during times that uh, that government uh, power is is in ascendancy, especially when it's becoming totalitarian. Now, that doesn't mean, therefore, you avoid all of the hard stuff. Historically, it takes uh, a pretty good dose of the hard stuff before enough people are humbled to the point that they're willing to exercise great spiritual faith. But the sooner we can get to exercising that, the sooner we can turn to who is actually in charge. And I'm going to tell you as someone who who has personal, first-hand, first-hand eyewitness knowledge of this, that to higher power is on your side. But you got to turn to him and you got to ask for his help. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You're going to be so glad that you are tuned in today because uh, we have my friend Dr. John C. Pulver back on the program. Now, if you haven't met him before, he's John, you're becoming a regular, so... Pretty soon, people just go, oh, John, John, come in, have a seat. But for those meeting you for the first time, take 30 seconds and just tell us a little bit about your background. My background is quite extensive uh, in education on human behavior. I'm, I'm uh, practiced as a licensed marriage and family therapist for 10 years. Uh, I, I have a current site that is called Climbing Upward, which is about making progress towards our best self and all the things we need to do or the things that we need to not do in order for that to happen. And I have experienced just about every kind of family structure uh, except for adoption itself. And so that informs my writing. I'm the author of Growing Beyond Your Family of Origin Experience, which we'll discuss probably today. And I'm going to be uh, another grandfather in about one week for number 10. Hey, <laughs> congratulations. So much older than Brian Hyde, so that's the thing. Well, you know, I mean, you, that's just that much more experience. Now, I want I want you, the listener, to understand, one of the reasons I love having John on the program is I feel like there is entirely too much of a victimhood mentality that is not only uh, accepted, but, but is actually promoted in many corners of the world. And it's, it's a very... It's a very damaging mindset, and I think what John has to share is is remarkable in that it helps us to better understand why we react the way that we do, um, how we can break out of that, and like you had pointed out, John, this is about becoming our better self. Which uh, yes, that doesn't you know it doesn't mean that everything's going to be smooth sailing, but when when things do happen, we can better understand uh, why they happen and how we can respond to them. And not get wallowing down, you know, mired down in, in victimhood to where, you know, suddenly, well, I'm not responsible for anything. So I guess I'll just sit here and, you know, wait for someone to tell me what to do or, or save me or you know, bring me cookies, milk, whatever. So, yes. Um, by the way, I did order your book today. So oh, I've got my own you. I've got my own copy coming. But there's there's a question that, that I wanted to, to jump into. This is from Frequently Asked Questions. And I know this is going to hit a nerve for some people. This is question 54. Did you experience being compared to other members of the family while growing up? Ooh, I remember that being a sore spot. Even I, I was the only boy. I had two sisters, but I remember my sisters had serious heartburn over a perception that dad loved me more because, well, I was the only son. I compared myself to my siblings. I've seen my children do this too. Talk to me about uh, 
why this is such an important thing to to address and understand in terms of of coming to grips, you know, with with your family of origin and and healing, I guess, if necessary. Well, definitely, you can either have had this experience or you have not had it, and we're going to address both of them if we have time. But often, if these comparisons are made in an unfavorable manner, I'm going to emphasize the emotions that you might feel in my voice as I go through this. You may experience emotions of self-doubt, embarrassment, and inferiority, or a sense of maybe being defective. You could actually feel jealous of the person compared to. You might feel attacked if you feel a subtle pressure that you should somehow be different. And it brings about defensiveness, a feeling of being misjudged or labeled. These comparisons could also make you feel very misunderstood, offended, looked down upon, unapproved, or even underestimated. And you might feel worthless compelled to, uh, compared to others and insecure about your value. Now, you might be compared to something positive in the family, and so that might make you feel uh, pride, and you may feel affirmed and accepted and appreciated, confident in yourself, and definitely desirable. And you definitely can feel a pride in achievement if your behavior is seen in a positive manner. But regardless of whether you have one or the other, living in a comparison world definitely has its drawbacks emotionally. So let's, can, can you give me an example of, you know, when a person is being compared, and I know my kids hated this, but I couldn't pinpoint exactly why is it such a damaging thing to them? If I say, why can't you clean your room like your brother does without, you know, me standing over you with a whip? What am I doing? And, and, and why, is that, why is that a harmful way to approach you know, what I perceive as a, as a problem that needs to be addressed. Well, I think each person needs to be able to feel affirmed in who they are. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses. It is not a fun thing to have your weaknesses blown out, blown up in front of everybody's verbally. It's embarrassing. And all of these words that we just went through with the emotions, it, it makes it so that we feel like we're not good enough. Anytime we feel like we're not good enough, that means we're not seen. And it's just so important for us to be seen as individuals. This is just part of it. The other thing that happens is that we end up with these mental conclusions in our head, which also was covered in the feedback for the FAQ. These kinds of things that we carry around, maybe as a result of this experience, and a few examples of these might be in our head, we might say, wow, if people reject me, it means there is something wrong with me. Um, I, I'm inferior. I don't do as well as other people. Um, how we seem to each other and this family seems to be more important than what's real. And showing my weakness is just going to get me in trouble or hurt. And maybe even worse, being in this family is like being in a psychological war zone. Wow. And so if there is, is there something about me that I should be ashamed about? Other people seem to be better than me. So you can see these mental conclusions that can come from, from these kinds of experiences. And, of course, you have good ones, too, from, from if you're compared positively to good things. Like, oh, you're just like the great uncle I had that was a magnificent person. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of helps. You know, so, I, I, I don't want to derail you here because I know we have a lot to cover, but something you said that just really jumped out at me was the, the idea that uh, we, start to, we start to focus more on, on how things appear 
In other words, the perception becomes more important than the reality. And I'm just thinking about, there are a lot of people I see out there who I think are, are really probably decent people, but they spend so much time portraying how decent they are and signaling to the world, you know, via social media or other things, look what a good person, look, I have these, uh, you know, these things in my uh, my avatar for, for social media, the right flag, the right pronouns, what, whatever it is. They're so consumed with the perception of appearing good that they don't actually have time or they don't put in the effort to actually be that good person. Well, there's no question at all that much of our behavior is quite defensive towards what we're actually feeling. Uh, sometimes they say there's no, nobody more insecure than a bully, you know, someone who really moves themselves around. I think a lot of times in, in psychology, we call this compensation. A lot of times we're trying to make a really great impression for a real big hole that's in our soul. And I am telling you, if your parents are constantly telling you that you're not enough, you're walking into your adult life with some kind of hole in your soul and you're trying to make sure that everyone thinks you're okay because you're not exactly very sure you are. And so your possible behavior with this is you might be quick to verbally defend yourself against even constructive criticism or evaluation. Uh, you might talk about other family members in terms of accomplishments or the lack of them. We might talk about, oh, there's that, that black sheep over there. You might actually gossip about others. You might actually fish for compliments from others by talking about yourself. And, and, and like you say, being, being absolutely greater than life. You, you know, it just depends a great deal upon whether it was a comparison, positive or negative. And so the wonderful thing about this is that we have the opposite of that, which is let's say you weren't compared. And just if we can for just a minute, you know, look at some of the responses real quick here you might if you're not compared you're feeling really adequate and you're worthwhile and you're respected you, you're really relaxed because nobody's attacking you and you don't have a lot of competition in this family and and nobody's really being set up as a standard that you have to work towards you're just as desirable as anybody else and so these are some of the kinds of emotional things that happen and uh, some of these mental conclusions are man i'm all right just the way i am I have nothing to be ashamed of. I possess really good qualities and uh, people are safe. And maybe you, you will join on to this big bandwagon that says all people should be accepted for who they are, you know, because it might be where this comes from because you are accepted and I'm all right just the way I am. So as we're kind of moving towards the end of this little segment, uh, you, just, you just get a lot of freedom if you have not had this comparison. You're just free to be yourself. You're free to look at positive things. You're free to build your own children, your spouse, your work associates. You will do those things positively, verbally, and with your attitudes. Wow. I, I'm just trying to weigh out in my mind, okay, is it more important that I, in my treatment of other people, make sure that I'm not comparing them unfairly? Or is this more important that I recognize that uh, those times where I felt compared? unfairly, you know, or, or things that I can get by. Maybe I'll ask you if you can touch on that when we come back after, after the break here, but I know it comes down to personal responsibility, right? Well, I think it comes down to not denying what happened to you mm -hmm. and realizing that just like the law of the harvest, there's something that happens to you emotionally, mentally, and physically when you have these experiences. It's positive and it's negative, and you need to know what it is. All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. John C. Pulver right after these messages. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. We are talking with my friend, Dr. John C. Pulver. By the way, uh, John has a marvelous website that I, I will include the link in the show notes. John, for people who want to visit your website, want to learn about your book, learn about your music as well, tell them where they can go to find you. For uh, the life-changing ideas and encouragement, go to climbingupward.com. And for some inspirational music to lift you on your journey, go to climbingupwardmusic.com. All right. Our goal here today is to, to help us better understand how we react to, to things that we've had to deal with in our lives. John, in your experience as, as a, a counselor, does anybody escape unscathed? Is, do you know of anybody who has made it through life without getting, uh, you know, a beat, a beat down by circumstances at some point or another? Well, I think that, no, I think the issue is even the most perfect family has things that you must recover from. And one of the things actually in that case is living in a perfect family and feeling like there's a lot that you have to live up to. But really, we don't escape it because all of us are raised by parents who don't know what they're doing. There's no manual, as you've said in a previous uh, program that we did. There's no manual for this. And so everybody's doing the best they can. And people have emotionally hurtful experiences and they have building experiences. And the closer they come to understanding both of those and accepting them and dealing with it and moving themselves upward, the more healthy they're going to be. Now, one of the things that I know we wanted to discuss today is uh, where do our opinions come from? Now, look, I, I'm one who has uh, opinion has kind of been the medium that I've worked in for a lot of years. And and I remember when uh, it seems like when my opinions were the strongest, that coincided with the time when I really understood things at the most shallow level. Is that fairly common that uh, the strongest opinions are usually when we least understand, you know, uh, how little we actually know? Well, I think one of the reasons that we have an opinion often is our ignorance. And, and this is very, very frightening right now because there's a lot of ignorance going on uh, because of certain things that are held back from us. And we can talk about that. I love this little story that my wife tells me about her husband, her, excuse me, her father, who was a, a principal of the, of the school. And he was the superintendent of schools in a small community. And, and he, one day he saw a group of teenagers chatting with one another on the corner. This was before they had the phones. Of course, this was way back. They were chatting and just talking and, and, uh, he made this snide comment. He said, well, there they are, pulling their ignorance. And so, you know, this idea of, you know, you don't know as much as you think you know, even if you get a group of people together. And certainly you got a lot more studying to do after you get out of high school to figure out what's really going on. So, so a lot of it is, what scares me about it is the fact that, um, depending on the agenda of the people that are giving you information, you can end up with a lot of ignorance and you think you're smart. Yeah. Isn't it, what's and it so, called? The Dunning-Kruger effect where actually the less people know, the more certain they are that they've got all the answers. Well, that's, that might, might very well be the case. I think the, the problem that we have is with the, uh, with the teenagers standing on the corner is that they lack a lot of experience in life. And they've been largely in our educational system told what to think, I'm convinced. 
And so they have to go out and have some experience and do some searching before their opinion really becomes lined up with what's really happening. But, you know, as, as we each look at, the, at this business of information, we need to be out of denial about the fact that we are entering the battleground of ideas. This is a war of opinions. This, this, is, this is a war that we're inside of, and we need to figure out what that war means. And I said the word agenda, very important for us to understand that no matter who we talk to, what organization we encounter, what kind of news agency or what article we read, everyone has an agenda, everyone has a viewpoint. You can't know what to do with what's being mouthed about by them until you can get some sense of what's behind it. And you've probably been exploring that for decades. Well, you know, my friend Connor Boyack actually made a point the other day that, that was right along those lines. And he said, you know, he writes this series of books, The Tuttle Twins, for helping people teach their kids principles yes. of, of free markets, liberty, and so forth. And someone said, well, you're propagandizing those kids. And I was kind of surprised at his answer because he said, yes. As parents, that's exactly what we're doing, because not all propaganda is bad. And and I, I assume that when we talk about an agenda, not every agenda is bad either. It, but but understanding what that agenda is, of course, is going to help the, the person who's, you know, on the receiving end of that information, hopefully make a better informed decision about, OK, where is this agenda trying to steer me? And then, you know, choosing wisely based upon what they they understand there. Absolutely. And the thing that's interesting to me is that what you actually listen to is going to form those opinions. And that's also going to form your emotions, as we talked about in the previous segment. For example, if you listen to someone say, say to you, uh, the world is going to end next year, and you've got plenty of people out there that will tell you that, or the stock market's going to totally crash and you're going to lose all your money. Well, what emotion do you have following that? And what conclusions are you going to have about life when you, when you have that? So a lot of times people will manipulate our opinions through fear and they'll manipulate our opinions through what they will leave out about what's actually happening. And this, this becomes difficult. We, we could go on in many segments about this as we pull each one of these apart. But the, one of the biggest things I see is a complete lack of historical knowledge. And the thing that really bothers me is, is when all of these things were taken out of textbooks uh, sometime after the 1930s, all of these original documents that were referred to, such as Washington's Farewell Address, different things like that. If you don't know what the people who founded this country had to say about various principles, you can't even make a, a judgment that is based upon truth or reality. You're just out with some sort of outlying opinion that doesn't have a basis in historical fact. So what do you recommend? Let's say that someone is hearing this and they're going, okay, this makes sense. I think John is right on the money. What, to, what are the steps that people need to take to make sure that they're, they're giving that honest evaluation and making sure that, that they're not being led, you know, by a, you know, rhetorical ring through the nose? It's interesting because Facebook actually has its own department to try to to uh, spot fake news, which I find to be rather comical in some ways, because I think they often uh, have an agenda of their own. But one of the things that they said in a small article is 
and I'll just give you some ideas. One thing they said was be skeptical of headlines. Uh, headlines that are all exclamation points and, and caps and things, they, they're probably a little bit uh, something you can be skeptical. Look very closely at the URL. A phony or look-alike URL may be a warning sign of false news. Uh, some people make these false things. Investigate the sources of where someone is saying something is about. And uh, consider the photos that you may come across, particularly in social media. Uh, look out for the photos. They often contain manipulated images or videos. And sometimes the photo may be authentic, but taken out of context. So look for evidence. Look, at, look to see if there's other reports. Now, this is one that I find interesting, as they say, if everybody is kind of saying the same thing and somebody is out there on their own, they're only saying one person saying this thing, be wary of that one person. But it depends upon the agendas of those who are in agreement and consensus. So, and then sometimes the story that you hear or something is actually a joke or intentionally false. Uh, you know, you have the Babylon Bee who is making, uh, <laughs> you know, points about, uh, but they're parodies and they're fun. Uh, the other thing is that frustrates me right now is it's almost like you have to pay to have news that is more objective. Um, if you look at all the major news sources, you'll find that they're basically saying the same things. And, and, and that should kind of make you a little wary about, well, why is there such a consensus when we have such a diverse group of people out there? No, I, I completely agree. And Look, something I've learned through through long experience is when there is something that's very, wow, look, this is breaking news and everybody's jumping on the bandwagon, it will not hurt you one bit to step back and kind of let things play out before you jump on the bandwagon. And oftentimes you'll find that the stuff, that, the, the salacious stuff that came out and everybody was buzz, a buzz about didn't really hold water. And it's a lot easier than having to <clears throat> walk back bad information that you inadvertently helped to spread. Yes, and speaking of our previous thing, when we're talking about uh, mental conclusions in our head, one of the things that our self-labels often bring our opinions about. For example, I'm a very fair-minded person, you describe yourself. Therefore, I feel or judge something, something, something about this. All people should be able to do this or this or that. And so the problem is, is you have to be careful with your principles are they guiding you or are these feelings guiding you? Again, we're talking with Dr. John C. Pulver. The links are in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.